0: Welcome to the Circle of Competence. Our guest today is Ed Redden, president and co-founder of Evermore Industries. Evermore is a holding company that seeks to acquire and operate industrial service businesses over the long-term. Ed holds a chemical engineering degree from the University of Notre Dame, as well as an MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business and now leads the operations division at Evermore. Ed, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the show.
1: Pleasure to be here, gentlemen. I really appreciate you having me on the show.
0: Awesome. Well, Ed, I think it'd be great if we could start by you giving us an overview of, of who you are and what Evermore is.
1: Sure. So, you know, um, I am kind of the operations half of Evermore. My background, you know, I graduated from Notre Dame with a chemical engineering degree, but then work, worked for GE in their, you know, corporate rotational program. You know, got to seize all different aspects of the supply chain and kind of really develop my operator skill set, people management, managing teams, etc. Um you know, that led me, you know, after doing that for a few years and kind of going through the, the struggles of corporate life, um, decided I wanted to get back into get into the driver's seat of small business. So I went and got my MBA at Stanford. And that's where I met up with Justin. And, you know, we had a lot of overlap and shared interests in kind of running small businesses with a much more long term mindset. And, you know, we started looking at search funds as kind of an entry point into ownership of a small business. But then decided we wanted to do something slightly different, and through multiple iterations, um, founding of the Search Fund Club at Stanford, developing a partnership, the two of us, we ended up, you know, kind of forming what Evermore is today, which is kind of a permanent capital, long-term holding company of small, you know, industrial services businesses.
0: So uh, you guys started the Search Fund Club <clears throat> at Stanford. You evaluate all these different options. Um, I'd love to know, like, what the various options that you guys entertained was, and why the hold co model ultimately made sense for you.
1: Yeah, we, um, you know, through forming the club, we, wanted, you know, we only had kind of two goals since it was in its infancy or its first year. You know, there's a lot of information and resources at the GSB for search in general. Uh, But it was mostly focused around kind of the traditional search fund. Um, And I know Chris, um, a couple of uh, weeks ago, did a couple episodes weeks ago, talked a lot about the different paths that entrepreneurs can take to get into the driver's seat. Um, And so we looked at that and we said, you know, a search fund is a great option for us. A traditional search is something that I was considering, Justin was considering, and could be a great way to do it. But then, you know, after we exited the business, if we were successful, You know, we kind of looked at each other and said, well, what would we do next? You know, we want to make a career in this space. And could we just kind of hold on to that business, maybe replace ourselves as management um, and then go back into where our sweet spot kind of is, which is kind of taking those founder, you know, founder led businesses to the next stage of growth, right? Kind of through that inflection point, instilling some systems, some processes, doing those first few key hires and really getting them to kind of more of a professionalized business. So we said, can we set up a structure that allows us to do that multiple times um, where we get to kind of evolve, learn hands on with the first one, but evolve and kind of get higher level through multiple acquisitions over multiple
2: decades.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I love the idea of permanent capital and being able to truly operate it over the long term without having to do a a quick buy and flip. Um, Selfishly, uh, I, I would love to know, as I consider these different routes, uh, what sorts of questions should I ask myself uh, to, to decipher or, or determine which route is best for me?
1: Uh, I think a lot of it kind of comes down to your, your, your patience level or your temperament. For um, we're going to be probably the least wealthy people at our five year and 10 year GSB reunions, right? We're going to have, we're building something that intentionally is long term in nature. And hopefully we have a very valuable company in 10, 20 years from now. But, you know, if I went and got a hedge fund job or worked in private equity right out of business school, I, I could be a lot more liquid, you know, wealth in my pocket um, one year, three year, five years from now. So I think some of it kind of goes to, are you okay playing the long game? Are you solving for, you know, your retirement as opposed to, do you want, you know, that luxury car in two years, right? And so, you know, Justin and I joke that we, you know, I drive a Toyota, he he drives a Ford. Like we're, we're, we're not the guys that are, you know, you know, live in the high life right here. We're very just kind of two humble guys from the Midwest. And so we really just really enjoy running businesses and kind of learning and building something that we can be proud of in 20 years. So I'd say a lot of, a lot of the questions you should be asking yourselves is kind of like, what are you solving for? And, you know, what is your timeframe? Are you okay with kind of, you know, being long-term or putting, locking yourself into a structure that is kind of illiquid or looking for the long-term versus, you know, um, kind of a traditional search has that exit or that liquidity event kind of targeted um, in that four to seven year time horizon.
2: I want to piggyback off of Victor's question because, well, first off two humble guys from the Midwest, we were joking before the podcast that uh, we didn't have both Justin and Ed on. And I told Ed that we had Charlie Munger on and we left Warren Buffett out. So, Uh, I have to chuckle. I drive a Honda Accord, so I'm right there with you. But how did you guys know that y'all were going to fit as partners together? Because Victor, you know, could go at it alone. A lot of people search alone. A lot of people form partnerships, but that's something we really haven't discussed. Uh, You know, I I just bought a small real estate services company. I don't have a partner, but I'm quickly kind of seeing that at some point, like we're going to have to hire someone on sort of the GM operations side. So I don't want to derail things, but while we're on the, Choosing the route question, like choosing the partner, if that's the right fit, as well.
1: No, that's a it's a great question. And the partnership discussion or choice is something that can um, make or break a lot of you know success stories or whatnot. Because you know choosing a partner is something that is very personal, and you you know you can go wrong uh, pretty quickly if you end up it not being a good fit. Justin and I had the ability or the benefit of really testing our partnership uh, throughout our time at Stanford. You know, we were in a lot, you know, obviously we first met being both Notre Dame alum. We met at a lot of, you know, Notre Dame football game watches in the fall. We ended up going to a lot of lunch info sessions all around search in the ETA um, kind of path. And then through forming the club, we started to learn each other's kind of working style. Right out of the gate, we noticed some complementary skill sets. Um, We kind of have clear division of what I was responsible for at Evermore what Justin will be doing and be responsible for it evermore. Cause my background is operations this is as much more on the finance side. So we noticed that there was that, you know, natural from a resume perspective, complementary like um, benefit from partnering together. But one of the things you really got to test in a partnership is kind of that values alignment and that vision alignment. Um, what, what do you guys want to build? How do you think about that? Um, and I think it just kind of, you know, through our friendship almost, We started to understand how each other think and what each other valued. And a lot of that could be that we're both raised in the Midwest, but I think there was a lot of just kind of um, values around patient capital, uh, around being good stewards of a legacy of a business for an owner, caring about the employees and trying to, you know, grow something, uh, maybe not like triple it in 18 months, but, you know, grow it steadily 10, 20% over 20 years. Right. And we're definitely um, kind of both interested in the more, boring businesses um, we like that boring is beautiful or masters of the mundane type like approach
0: i love i love what you said there about just having aligned core values um, been me and bitten with this podcast it's it's the first time i've ever partnered with something on any sort of like business endeavor and so um, forming a partnership i knew would be like an interesting learning experience and i think that the main takeaway for me is that Ben and I don't always agree on like how we should, uh, you know, evaluate every option or every situation. But I think that having core values that are aligned um, has, has solved like 99% of potential problems. (laughs) Um, So I'd love to transition to launching Evermore and the fundraising process, especially as two young guys. Um, So I know that, Justin went out and asked a lot of people for advice on, on what you guys were thinking about building. And I'd love to know how your initial idea of what Evermore or whatever the name of the business was at the time, the very beginning, evolved throughout those conversations into what ultimately became Evermore.
1: I'd say in a lot of the early conversations, you know, we both were just asking for advice, you know, going to experts in the space, investors, people with pattern recognition to say, hey, you know, if we were to build something that looked like multiple search funds, right? Like successive or even overlapping, we just wanted to kind of be in this community for the next, you know, for our, make our careers in the space. You know, how how would we structure that? How should we think about that? Should we be uh, a holding company that does kind of more passive investments and just backs operators of good businesses? Do we want to be more of an opco where we kind of get our hands on and run the businesses ourselves? Um, You know, what is the best model for entering into that A.J. Wasserstein has some great papers on long term holds and, you know, kind of the ways to evaluate what you're trying to build. Um, That came out after we had, you know, kind of formed evermore done a lot of this, you know, thinking uh, ourselves, but it's a great um, reference or kind of great path for how to think about what it is that you're forming in terms of any type of long term permanent capital structure.
0: For sure. And, and as you guys, uh, went out, like, obviously you have impressive backgrounds, uh, you know, Notre Dame undergrad, I've got a friend who went to Notre Dame. It sounds like probably the hardest undergrad school you could go to with the, with the bell curve system. You went to Stanford GSB, which I've heard of. Um, I know that's, that's a school out in California that that's pretty impressive. Uh, but still, I mean, you were young guys trying to raise a pretty unique, uh, holding company structure business, how did you raise capital for the first time? Uh, how did you convince people to buy into that idea and to trust you with capital as, as first timers?
1: It wasn't easy. And it's a long process to kind of um, get people to actually put dollars behind you. Justin and I are very unproven. Um, we're very young, um, we, we both have experience, you know, in investing and in operating businesses, but never, you know, at this scale or in this like full ownership type um, kind of, of a small business. So it took a long time is the short answer. You know, we, we really focused at the start on kind of just asking for advice and asking for kind of mentorship, kind of really iterating on kind of the structure, how, how we should go about this. And that took about, I'd say, at least at least a year before we actually started kind of going around and saying, hey, you know, we've been working on this idea with you guys. Uh, we, we int- I should take a step back. We intentionally wanted kind of a small set of investors that we could fit around a single table, right? Like we we didn't want this big cap table. We really wanted to partner up with people that shared our vision for what we wanted to build with Evermore. And so we kind of put a tight circle around who kind of thought the way we did, who we wanted to partner with, and then developed that relationship on how to structure this, what were the goals, how to think about this, model it out, um, put together a pitch deck and just talk about it. No capital raising discussion for a good year. Um, and then by the time we kind of had this memorandum of understanding of what we wanted to build, well then then the capital raise became much easier because we had already built that relationship we had worked together and people were like, yeah, this is exactly what, you know, I want to invest in. And so, yes, I will be willing to put my dollars behind it at that point. So for startups and for other people, I always recommend that, hey, the best time to ask for money is when you don't need it. So just ask for advice and ask for coaching early on, get feedback on it such that when you do ask for money, what you're asking money for is exactly what people want to back with
2: their dollars.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love the idea of of having the potential investors buy into the idea on the front end. And then then you can just give it to them and say, hey, this is what you wanted. Um, I imagine it takes a certain type of person to align with that structure. So in terms of like career stage and career background that these investors are in, what do most of your investors look like?
1: Um, I would say that they're all high net worth individuals. We have one family office, but the Profile or skill set of each of them is is quite different, and we were intentional about that in terms of, you know, we looked at kind of operator to investor mindset um, and kind of said we want some people who have been in our shoes, who have done a search and operated small businesses. But we would also like some investors who are kind of more passive, who have that pattern recognition and are just really good investor type mindsets. We wanted some young people that were newer earlier in their careers that really needed ever more to be a success. Uh, but we also wanted some people that had deeper pockets that were willing to, you know, kind of support us over the long run. Maybe they're solving for a different portion of their, you know, personal portfolio. Um, it may not be for their own personal wealth. They're already successful, but maybe for their kids or even grandkids type allocation. And that that works very well for kind of the permanent capital type structure that's very illiquid, uh, but compounds tax free over multiple decades. So, like, you had to be very um, strategic or intentional about, you know, what roles are you going to lean on people for? Because, you know, searching and acquiring and operating businesses require different skill sets at different stages. So we really kind of, when we said, hey, we want a small group, we really were intentional about like, what are we going to be using that person for? And a lot of people told us no when we went to them to ask for money. But then a lot of, we, we did tell some other people no and said, hey, you know what, like kind of we've already filled that role um, in, our, in our investor base and we're trying to be very close tight-knit about who we're who we're partnering with for such a long journey
2: i got a question about just general just the structure you don't have to get into the details but is it is it similar to kind of how you know brett B. Shore set up permanent equity where you have basically a split on cash flow or are there hurdle rates like how did you guys think about it, trying to align incentives
1: we tried to align it very much like a uh, like a public company would. Like a public company that would, you know, we we are a C Corp uh, intentionally. We have issued shares to our investors and we own shares in the company ourselves. Um, we're, we're all, our, our laser focus is about increasing value per share and all of our activities throughout this life cycle is all about, you know, are we increasing that value per share? And then Justin and I are personally compensated similar to like, you know, us public company CEOs or presidents would be we're board members, we have a board. Um, And so we're very much trying to align ourselves with we're um, our our lawyer calls us we're a mini conglomerate, right, like we're we're a startup conglomerate that doesn't really have any companies today, but wants to build into that over time. So I would say we're very much more so away from the two and 20 type model of private equity. Um, We're closer to the search fund model where you can kind of earn into equity in the business through performance and through um, you know, kind of sweat equity into the business. Um, but it, it, that gap between those two types of models is very wide. There's a lot of different levers you can pull to structure something that works for you on the timeframe that you want to be on that works for your investors as well. And so, you know, in the end, we feel like we got a really great structure that kind of solves for what we're trying to solve for in terms of building in compounding something that will endure for the next, 20, 40, 50 years.
0: I've got a couple more questions on this fundraising and launching process. Uh, yeah. And I'd love to transition to sourcing and evaluating businesses. So um, I read online that that you guys received some advice during the fundraising process to be entrepreneurs, make of this what you want to make of it, which I really love because I think that a lot of people that want to be entrepreneurs, they hear about the search fund route, and they think they have to follow the traditional model by the book or You know some other ETA model by the book, but I love that it really does come down to being an entrepreneur and making it, uh, making of it what you want to. So when when you think about designing your life and your perfect career, what does that look like for you? And and how would you spend your days? And how different is that today from what you want to be doing in thirty or forty years?
1: It's a great question Um, because you know today I really want to get into the driver's seat and I want to be very hands on running the day to day. Executing on a business, right? A specific business. Um, Justin and I both want to be doing that, right? Like we want to. We we don't want. We broke away from being at, you know, Bain Capital and GE, very high level, and we want to get hands on and and walk the walk the path ourselves. Um, That's that's something that we both view as a learning process and something that's kind of temporary. So for the next, you know, for the next decade, I hope I get one or two reps at really being in the driver's seat, managing a business. Looking to grow it and like living those pains of operating business. You've had a couple guests now that really talk about it and like Ben, you're living it now. Like operating a business is very hard, and growth doesn't just happen magically. Even if it's on a track record of growth, like it still takes a lot of effort. And there's a lot of good learnings that you can get into and pattern recognition, and you know just being able to speak from experience is a real value add. So for the next decade or the ne- at least the next five years, I'm I'm very much in learning mode in Doing mode. But then, as we acquire more and more businesses, you got to recognize that you can't do it yourself, right? There's no, I'm only one person here. And even if I'm, you know, heads down in a business, I can only manage as much as I can, or, you know, I can only succeed with the team that I have in place. So, if we want to grow ever more through multiple acquisitions, whether that be in the same industry, you know, vertically integrating or doing tuck ins and more of a consolidation, or if that's in you know, completely distinct, disparate businesses, right? So separate verticals. At some point, we're going to have to uh, kind of graduate to the holding company level and be more capital and human allocators um, within Inside Evermore as a holding company where I'm doing kind of people and process management, sharing best practices, developing playbooks from my time, uh, being hands-on in the business and sharing those learnings across the multiple businesses that we now own. Um, And just in the same way with capital allocation, right, making decisions. If we need to funnel cash from one business to another, we've structured it such that we can fund, you know, the fastest growing, the best opportunities to kind of compound cash. We're we're not limited uh, in terms of our structure with anything that's under the Evermore umbrella.
0: Do you guys have shared services today or or are all of your businesses uh, wholly independent and doing all of those back office tasks within themselves?
1: So uh, first off, we don't have any businesses today, still looking for like the first acquisition. But the thought is that, yes, some of those shared services you can um, integrate at the holding company level, right? And you can get some good, cost. but we do really envision each business to kind of, we want them to be somewhat autonomous, to think independently about them. We don't want to tie them into a big corporate structure. We want to be very lean at the holding company level. Um, and kind of really make sure that any dollars spent up there is really in the best interest of that value per share and the best interest of Evermore as a whole. Because we want them to be independent and to think like owners of their business, right? And not really rely on other people to kind of fund them cash or or Evermore to handle payroll. No, like we want you to kind of operate independently. And by getting hands-on in the first one and kind of evolving into that, um, I think that that will naturally result because we're going to instill in that culture the mindset of hey, your portfolio company one, but you you know you're you're independent. You run, you operate, you think about yourself. Any you, yes, you're going to pass cash up to get redistributed down to the the portfolio companies, but we want those businesses to really think and operate kind of autonomously and independently from each other, sharing
2: best practices. You mentioned that you are planning on operating kind of day one first business, what what will your partner Justin be doing?
1: That's the real TBD question. So I, I have a clear defined role of I get to step in and run the business as the day-to-day CEO. Justin will be definitely my right-hand man in terms of, you know, CFO, but, you know, a lot of these small businesses, they don't really have a full-time need for a CFO. Um, right. But a lot, a lot of what I hope to lean on him for in, in that first step of the business is kind of, you know, hey, I, I'm going to be focusing on growing the business, establishing people in the right seats, building up processes and kind of this playbook. I don't wanna to have to worry about making payroll. I don't wanna to have to worry about what is the best decision or best use of cash. I need you to be telling me that, right? And so he'll have one foot in the business, hopefully, um, hopefully, but also one foot in business development, thinking strategically about what is the next step? What is the next best use of cash for the, for the growth of the business? Um, and that really kind of depends on the size of that first acquisition as well. If it's small, you know, it's it's going to be very different than if it's you know a three or four million dollar EBITDA business. Um, the need for that capital allocation is going to be just it's going to be a different role. And so Justin's a little bit TBD in terms of his role of how that's going
0: to play out. A little bit more of a tactical um, fundraising question is uh, on your website. Uh, I know that you guys investment criteria is, it has a, it's industrial services focus, but in terms of like EBITDA revenue has a pretty wide range. Um, you also, it also says that you guys have committed capital, but no LPs. Um, I'm just not really that familiar with that, I guess. Like, how do you have committed capital without limited partners?
1: So, what we the way we structured it is we put um, an LLC above the C Corp where all of the committed capital sits at the LLC level and was like committed at that level. And then the LLC 100% owns the C Corp where Justin and I own shares and the investors own shares. So, what it looks like is the board of the C Corp is the one that kind of makes the investment decisions just like you wanted, a, you know, the acquisitions just like you wanted a public company. But if they approve that, then it's going to look like a capital call to the you know minority shareholders, the people that are non-board members, and so the the money sits above it. But you just kind of it looks like a call of capital if an investment gets approved.
0: Super interesting, and uh, I mean, quite frankly, I had never even considered that as an option for uh, fundraising or capital allocation. Um, so, Ed, I know I know you're an expert at sourcing and evaluating businesses. And I'd love to uh, transition to that topic. So um, recently Justin had a tweet thread about getting up to speed quickly on a business. And um, the the four points of this uh, getting up to speed quickly on a business thread were, step one was desktop research to validate that the industry is growing and has decent margins. Step two is identify experts. Step three is research experts to write a personalized email and step four is prep and interview experts. First and foremost, over the last few months, I've started to reach out to business owners, um, not really with the intention of buying these businesses anytime soon, but just trying to understand how you reach out to business owners and how they think and how they're gonna perceive me on the phone. Um, It's really hard to get business owners on the phone. Um, While experts are different than business owners, I imagine that there's a common thread here. So I'm curious, how do you convince an expert to spend any time with you when, I mean, theoretically they get nothing in return?
1: It's tough, right? Like it, it, we've definitely sit here and kind of go, we're, we're very much a B2B sales organization right now where we're contacting owners, trying to make that sale of, will use some of your business, but the same applies to kind of these strategic advisors, river guides or industry experts. You know, it is somewhat of a volume game where you're just kind of, you got you to ask a lot of people for advice because some of them will say, you know, buzz off. Other people will say, yeah, I'm retired and all I do is sit on nonprofit boards. I love talking about the industry. Um, and so you get some of those type of people as well. But in our outreach, you know, we kind of rely on the fact that we're, you know, we're just looking to learn. We're, we're young entrepreneur type guys really excited about an industry conveying that excitement and interest in whatever space we're looking at is know it's kind of key. We're not just tourists, right? We're not just like, you know, passively trying to, you know, waste your time. No, like we we really like this space. We're looking to acquire in this space. We're committed to this space. Um, That that really kind of I don't know helps break down some barriers. But the other you know secret is if you can get any type of warm intro from your investor base, from your friends, a LinkedIn connection, a shared undergrad, like literally anything. it does somewhat open the door to people being willing to kind of help, right? Um, but there's no substitute for just kind of asking, saying, hey, I'm here to learn. Would you be willing to help out a young guy? Like I've done all the desktop research I can, but I can't I can't learn anymore from Google.
2: What are some of the most interesting things that you've learned that, that may generalize beyond just that specific industry from industry experts? Like some things that are surprising to you. I'd be curious. I imagine you you know, you can say that you're committed to an industry, but like, I'm sure you've probably had something, some things sort of come across from these experts that maybe you're not as committed or you're not as excited, or maybe the opposite, you're, you're way more excited than you even were prior to getting on the phone. So maybe chat about that and, and some of the things that you have learned in these conversations.
1: You're absolutely right that some of some of the industries we get really excited about, and we think they're gonna be great targets in, you recognize you're 10 years late to the game. Right, like private equity is already like scooping everybody up or the consolidation has already happened or the margins just weren't as good as you thought. Like it's way more commodity than you really expected it to be from, from the outside looking in. Um, so you do kind of find those and, and, you know, it's unfortunate, but we were being genuine that like, we were very interested in this space. Like we're not, you know, selling people a false. Um, but I'd say some of the things that you kind of learn from these industry experts that are tough to get from desktop research or even business owners is a lot of these industry experts have years and years of experience. Um, They've kind of you're targeting the people that kind of recognize or can speak to the macro trends in the industry, Um, kind of how, how the industry has evolved and where it's going. Um, And so we try to like focus a lot of our questions. You know, yes, we'd like to know the margin profiles and kind of the service lines or the revenue breakdown. But sometimes the best you know validation you can get from an industry expert is just about the the size of the market. Is it growing? What are the dynamics of the players in it? I don't want to say how sleepy is it, but you know, kind of how are the businesses being run? Are they being run in a very uh, kind of old school break fix type model? Are people leaning into technology and really leveraging kind of off the shelf solutions? Um, or is this just something that you know? Because of the nature of the industries we look in, is it just kind of unsexy and just kind of humming along? And you know, it's just it's just not it's not an area where people are are focusing dollars and attention. You know, that kind of it's a double-edged sword. But that kind of gets us pretty excited that we could really you know add impact. When you hear things like you know they're still on pen and paper or they're still you know working off of Excel and they're not really they have no salespeople and you know, that's the kind of stuff that we get excited about. Um, so it's, it's, when you're talking to those industry experts, that's the kind of high level stuff that we try to key in on is just what's happening, broadly speaking, in the industry. And is this something we can, that's going to endure when we can commit 20 years of, of acquisitions and growth in a space?
0: I know that as you guys source opportunities, your high level goal is to be focused on one theme or thesis at a time. Um, can you give an example of, a theme or thesis that you guys have explored at some point and how you even discover those themes or theses in the first place?
1: This was the the surprising factor to me about, um, you know, I did a lot of research on searching, right, in, in business school. And I thought that the hard part was going to be getting owners on the phone and convincing them that I was the right fit to, to, you know, carry on the business. That actually, you know, that is hard, but that's not not the hardest part, I think, of search. The hardest part of search is, one step prior to that, where you're kind of sitting there going, where do I even outreach? Like what pond do I even start to fish in? Right. Because the riches are in the niches, right? Everybody knows that, but they're hard to find in terms of where do you look. So we try to start with a broad theme or a broad space that that kind of has good tailwinds, is clearly growing or whatever. And then you know, you kind of just got to dive into the pool, start talking to these industry experts, listen to what they're saying. Um, we kind of say, hey, if we're in the right pond, then the goal is to kind of figure out the coves where the good fish are, right? Where the good businesses are, where the high, higher margins, the stickier customer base, the more recurring revenue, that's kind of the goal. So we'll you know we started in aerospace and medical device uh, back in when we first launched, back in September. And we've come a long way from that, right? Like we used to look very, you know, this is the fairway, manufacturing of aerospace parts. But then like the characteristics of that were not as what we didn't find what we were looking for there so we started going just tangential to that just a little bit what are some businesses that support those manufacturing facilities and can we find higher recurring revenue in support services businesses um, for high value assets there same thing in the medical space right like, can we find businesses that are supporting you know, medical, laboratory, scientific, or or industrial assets that, that you really can't afford to have go down. Um, and so that's kind of the evolution to how we kind of come to the end niche that we're doing a lot of outreach in, but it's very non-linear. And the best way you can do it is make sure that you get the broad theme right, and then just start talking to people. Limit your desktop research to just validate that, like, you're in a good pond, um, and then really try to get get on the phone with as many people as you can to kind of understand if you were to acquire sir or madam, where would you acquire, right? Or what would you be looking for in this space?
2: One of my favorite questions that uh, I think Buffett used to ask or may probably still ask, but you know, he would always ask people like if, if you could, uh, you had a silver bullet and you could eliminate one competitor, who would it be? Right. Um, And then you kind of just, listening to you talk about the ancillary service businesses you reminded me of that analogy that Andrew Wilkinson gave which is the barnacle on the whale can can almost be you know better returns than being the whale itself right um, are there and I think that analogy really can generalize well across industries too um, have you seen that is that the case in general um, does that hold not hold what do you think
1: that absolutely holds and one of the things that's also surprising is when you talk to industry experts um, is that people have uh, a wide definition of what is a big business, right? Like they're like, oh, you would never want to be in that, play, that that industry because, you know, because GE is in that industry. And you're like, well, I, I don't need, you know, I can build a hundred million dollar revenue business and GE wouldn't even care because I like, you're the barnacle on the whale, right? Like you're just not, uh, you're not a threat, you're not moving. And so we really have to, uh be intentional about the questions that we're asking and make sure that we're aligned on some of those terms of you know what is a big business, how fragmented is this industry? It's totally okay if three players own 80% of an industry, if there's a thousand players in the remaining 20%, right? And you can easily eat at that 20%, scoop up a handful of businesses, build something that you know kind of goes from Three million in revenue to twenty-five million in revenue, fifty million in revenue, and if you're doing that across multiple industry niches, you know Evermore looks like a great company in twenty years.
0: Could you walk through what some preliminary desktop research would look like as you start to evaluate an industry?
1: Yeah, a lot of it kind of is around kind of growth of the industry and tailwinds, right? Like, what are the the dry? Are there government regulatory? Um, are there things that you should know at, at a very high level, like you know, outsourcing, nearshoring, right? Like very different dynamics that kind of push uh, a rising tide to anybody that's playing in the space. That's really all you're trying to validate is that you're just not in a dying industry that is going to not necessarily even go away, but just kind of contract or um, that the big OEMs aren't changing their strategies, right? Especially for services businesses. Some of these OEM manufacturers, they're happy to be OEM manufacturers. They make the part, they ship the part, whatever, that's all they want to do. They outsource the service. Well, that's some some industries, that model's changing where now I kind of sell the, the engine at cost and I really want the long-term service contract after the fact. And so depending on how much they're throwing their weight around and whatnot can really lead to you know hard uphill sales growth once you get in the game. And that's just something that you know. If you can avoid, uh, you're really just trying to validate at a very, very high
0: level. What are you What are you reading exactly that's like pointing that out to you or, or letting you identify that? Is it like IBIS reports or is it Wall Street Journal articles that say? hey, this industry is, is, you know, transitioning to a different model.
2: Yeah, I I would follow that up too by saying, like, by the time you read a Wall Street Journal article or a New York Post, like, for example, I saw a New York Post article that's like, you know, Wall Street heating up to garbage trucks, right? Like, well, okay, like, have you been following? Did you you know about Waste Industries? And I forget the guy's name that, you know, built it. Like, you know, so anyways, I'd be curious, same thread there. Like, what's the earliest on the ground research that you're looking at? So maybe another way to reframe it.
1: It starts kind of with that, you know, generic IBIS world type report, right? Like basic Google desktop research. Um, A lot of good resources come from conferences, right? If you can get into the industry conference or the industry like trade show, um, the organization that is kind of advocating for certification and training, that type of stuff, um, you can look at a lot of numbers that kind of just will tell you how many players are in the industry um, kind of what size they are. We subscribe to you know ZoomInfo as a database to kind of just like look real quick. Are these big businesses, small businesses, how many hits are you getting? Um, so that can kind of point you in the direction of, yeah, there's a lot of players or there's not um, public companies. If there's a big public company in the space, you can look at their annual reports to get a good market breakdown. And you can look at their history and figure out, are they winning market share? Are they losing market share? Um, but. Part of the reason why we really limit the desktop research to just kind of, you know, finger in the wind, is this validating we're in a good pond, is because a lot of the answers to the the, the real questions you want to ask, you just can't find online, or you're going to spend a lot of time trying to find that blog post or that article that talks to what you're trying to solve for. So the best way to kind of get that answer is by talking to people, and that, that takes a lot of effort to, you know, drum up a list of experts hit them up on LinkedIn or email them in a campaign to try to, you know, get time on their calendar. Um, but once you get them, you know, we've had some really, really great calls with some high level people through, you know, the Notre Dame alumni network or the Stanford alumni network, where, you know, they're, they're now CFO at one of the big players in the space. And, you know, just cause we share that alumni connection, they're willing to give us 30 minutes to kind of say, hey, don't go over there. That's too commodity, go over here, right? Like this is where the hot stuff's happening. And that's talking to people is the best way to kind of get those questions answered.
0: So this idea of understanding what industry to pursue is super important to me. Um, I've worked at a SaaS company for the last two years, but I definitely wouldn't say that I'm some expert in SaaS or think that I'd be a great SaaS investor or even operator. Um, As we know, the, the core premise of capital allocation is to choose the optimal investment opportunity among many options. Mm -hmm. I personally find it very easy to fall into analysis paralysis and just not even know which route to go down. Like pest control sounds cool. Plumbing sounds cool. Um, You know, a million industrial services, a million different options. Um, Do you have any suggestions or frameworks for me to consider as I think about uh, which opportunity or which industry to dive into?
1: I say, you know, make sure that you get the high-level things right, and then I do sprints in those industries in terms of if you have five different spaces that you think you could see yourself owning and operating a business in, you know, don't spend a month doing research and outreach in each. Spend two weeks, right? Email, get 80% of the owners and kind of get as much as you can in, in a quick sprint, and let that initial first pass uh, give you either further confidence that this is an industry that's going to be target rich, that you can see yourself in, that you like the dynamics that are going in or not. One of the best things you can do is to kill an industry quickly. And so I would say if you have, if you're torn between all of them, you can't do them all at once, but you know, get a scorecard, rank them, figure out which one you want to start with. This should be really quick, but then hit them all up over the course of a month, a month and a half, just in terms of high level you know, here's the first pass of 100 owners that I could drum up pretty quickly. And then let those conversations with that, you know, you're only gonna get maybe five owners to get on the phone out of 100. Let Those five owners, if you can see financials in the space, you'll learn a lot pretty quickly. And it'll either want you, it'll cause you to want to either double down or exit. Um, You know, like, and so then go back to the ones that you find uh, particularly compelling to kind of say, okay, maybe it's worth, you know, spending some time in here, planting a flag, so to speak, but turning over that remaining 20% that aren't in the database, or maybe didn't your email hit the spam filter. And so you got to kind of come up with other ways to kind of break through the noise for those, but only do that once you've validated that this niche is something that you could see yourself in.
0: That's super helpful. And as you said, the first step to that is thinking about maybe five different options that I could see uh, industries that I could see myself operating a business. in. I think that is really the step where I'm the most hung up. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, how do you even go about, I mean, for you, you, you came from an industrial services background at GE operating many businesses there. How could I start to think about, you know, which, which industries or businesses I could see myself in?
1: So we started, you know, we started, Uh, like I said, kind of in the in the fairway of an industry and then started looking at what supports that industry. One of the ways that you could also do this that we did early on was we created um, being from the supply chain, I walked the supply chain of an industry from start to finish, kind of identifying all the players and everything that I did on a shop floor in any given day, from people to talent to raw materials, parts, machines, all this kind of stuff, just kind of like lay it all out in in a spreadsheet. And then kind of go through that and say, okay, in each of these columns, each pieces of the value chain here, what kind of businesses would evolve from that, right? So you're kind of starting with this theme and then kind of doing a big brainstorm spider web type approach to say, where do all the niches actually lie on this theme? Um, And so that's kind of where you kind of got to start. And then once you pick one of those far out branches that like, hey, this sounds, you know, even pest control, like what kind of pest control? Is this residential, is this commercial, is this, you know, all kinds, there's even branches on a theme like pest control. And once you circle one of those, explore it, do a quick sprint in it, and then do a little bit of a pivot, right? Do about a a 20% pivot to say like, you know, hey, we were on high value assets in an industrial place. Like we were on motors. Well, the other types of rotating equipment could be fans, could be, you know, CNC spindles, could be, um, you know, I don't know, pumps, uh, compressors, like chillers, air conditioning, HVAC units, like looking at all of these kinds of things kind of helped us go pivot around and your outreach or your list building activities, they do look different. Yeah, you get some overlap, but you actually turn up a completely different distinct set of com- target companies by just kind of going at something, and then moving just adjacent to that to kind of say, hey, that maybe didn't work out, but this sounds interesting as well.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of, Victor's, kind, I feel like it's kind of like when we were chatting about like th- just the golf industry, just, just kind of riffing on the golf industry from everything from like internet businesses that are travel related or hospitality and golf related, that are media related, all the way to like club manufacturers and, and sort of brands um or owning a golf course or owning a, a driving range right like it's all in that golf umbrella but you know um, but yeah that's I thought that's a great question you know, f- was one of the points that I guess made you want to stick in industrial services was that your background? was it like a passion was it, Hey, this is what I'm experienced in. Was it both? Was it neither? <laughs> I'm curious. It's almost
1: all of those, right? Like I, my time has been on the shop floor managing these types of, um, I don't want to call them blue collar workforce, but just more industrial type people, people that wear blue jeans to work versus suits, right? Um, and Justin invested in a lot of those businesses as well at his time at Bain Capital. So we feel like we're just a natural fit for those types of businesses um, in terms of resonating with the founder we find a lot of those we're we're both from the midwest we're looking for businesses kind of in the heart of america not in the new yorks or the bay area type geographies which is just something that we find is a differentiator for us it's kind of more compelling to say we like the the widget manufacturer in columbus ohio and not many people get excited about going to run that services business in i don't know bloomington indiana but i i do right and um And so we find that that's a differentiator for us. We understand those businesses a little bit better um, and they just kind of match better for us in terms of with our long-term view, with our long-term 20 year horizon, you know, um, some of the SaaS businesses or some of the other more tech businesses, those are pretty competitive and you play more of a venture capital game in terms of getting to scale uh, versus, you know, if you have a good IP product that makes screws or, you know, hooks, right? Like, you know, that thing's been around for 40 years. It's probably going to be around for another 40 years. Somebody always needs, there's always going to be a need for somebody to go turn a wrench on some type of asset, regardless of what type of software is backing it or email marketing campaign you're running. Somebody's always got to go tangibly make a product. And that's, you know, even with automation and robotics and that kind of stuff, we're, we're a long way from, you know, kind of true light out factories and automation. So we we wrote in even then, you no, know, the robots are gonna break down, right? So you always need this kind of human labor touch. And so we feel like those just lead to very enduring businesses for kind of a long-term vehicle.
0: To kind of summarize what I've taken away from the way you guys evaluate industries and to leverage what Andrew Wilkinson said, it's it sounds like you're identifying the ocean where there's a rising tide and then figuring out who the whales are and then try to be one of the barnacles.
1: It's not too, not, yeah, it's not too inaccurate. Uh, the process is a little, you know, we also kind of look at a lot of the factors for, um, you know, the niche dynamics in terms of number of targets and like margins and stickiness. Like if we had one guiding principle, we'd probably say that our, our number one thing that we look for in, in a business that we acquire is low single digit customer churn if you're a services business providing the same service to the same set of customers month after month, year after year, and you're not losing those customers at all. They're not, you know, through good times or bad times, you're a very needed service. You know, that points to us. as like a very stable business that we can step in um, kind of have confidence it's going to continue to plot along as it has been. And we can really focus on the growth
0: aspect. All right. So that's a perfect transition to the next thing I wanted to hit which sure. is uh, in, in another interview, you guys talked about analyzing businesses and you mentioned this Venn diagram that I really liked where one circle is businesses that you're excited to acquire and own forever and the other is around business quality. So um, I guess starting with the second circle the business quality, um, obviously, you know, you've know mentioned that you want to see a rising tide in the industry and, and the single most important factor is low customer churn. When you think about quickly evaluating an industry, or quickly evaluating businesses, um, and you're going down this checklist to kill, you know, opportunities that you don't want to pursue, what are some of the other uh, aspects of business quality that you want to hit?
1: If you've got, um, you know, I'd say 15% plus EBITDA margins, and low single digit churn, as long as you're not contracting, um, those are kind of like that. If I could find both of those like a business that's either flat because it's reached the ceiling of brute force that the the owner founder has been able to scale his business to or he just doesn't want to go acquire or grow into the next geography. He just like is running it for more of a lifestyle business like the guy's near retirement. Um, but if you have a good healthy margins and low customer churn you know, those are like that, that right there, right there kind of points to uh, a business that we would probably be really excited about acquiring. Um, You know, it, if it's got a services and people aspect to it, as opposed to um, manufacturing of a product that even gets us more excited.
0: I'm going to put you into a corner right now and and say, if you could only choose one uh, low customer churn or 15% EBITDA margins that aren't contracting, which one would you choose? I
1: would probably still go with the low customer churn. you know if it's low margin, that can be okay. Um, it does indicate that there may it may be more of a commodity type service. but even on commodity type services, if you're not losing your customers, you know you can have the, increase the size of the pie and still make a small you know margin percentage on a bigger pie. We're, we're, and if you do that consistently over a 20 year period, you know, that'd be fine with us. We really like good cash flowing businesses that have pretty straightforward business models. And so if I had to pick, it would definitely be kind of the sticky customer base, low customer churn. And that, that's not, you know, the contractual recurring revenue side of it. But it is, it does point to the fact that like you have repeat customers who aren't going somewhere else. You're not playing a price competitive game where I've got to be the lowest cost guy in the space.
0: I love that. Um, So to summarize, it's really the rising tide, the low customer churn, and the 15% EBITDA margins. So we've identified kind of the ideal characteristics for you guys on business quality. What about in terms of key factors of businesses you're excited to acquire and own forever?
1: Those are a lot of, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the businesses that require human Touch Right. Like we really like repair and preventative maintenance businesses because mechanical things need somebody to go fix them. Right. And it's such a pain. I lived this when I was a GE. Right. Like you end up getting to this like run to failure or break fix mindset where it's item number 10 or 20 on my priority list until it breaks. And then it's number one priority because I can't ship product right, but I know I should be doing some of this stuff, but I just can't figure out, you know, I got other things, other fires I'm fighting throughout the day. We think that there's a great opportunity as a service provider to come in and say, let me take that problem off your plate. I'll monitor it through technology or I'll just be a really world-class service provider such that it never reaches above priority level number five. And if I can do that efficiently and, you know, through, you know said some technology that's out there today or just really uh better business processes um i think that there's a lot of opportunity to kind of build a great business that eats around the edges that provides a service to some of the big players big manufacturing or industrials um it doesn't doesn't ever reach their you know uh anywhere on their budgeting process or they're not really looking to hey you increase 10 percent you know yeah, I went from $100 to $110, like, you know, but I'm doing that, you know, monthly at a lot of your sites and I have this big book of business. I think those are really great businesses that kind of endure for a very, very long time.
0: That That's super helpful. Um, so as you guys identify industries and businesses that, that you're excited about, um, you find some owners you want to talk to, you get on the phone with an owner. How do you how does Evermore differentiate itself from other buyers that are approaching these owners?
1: We the two differentiating factors that I think we we have from other owners is we want to get hands-on in the business. You know, we're not we're not like private equity or strategics that want to like we want to run this business. So you're talking to the guy that wants to come be in the office day to day, which isn't that differentiated from search or from micro PE or whatnot. But the difference between us and them is that we also have this committed capital. So you're going to be part of something bigger that if you are a business owner that has always seen the potential in your business, um, but you just haven't had the ability, the manpower, the time, the capital, to kind of take it to that next level. We have the capital pre-raised, sitting on the sideline. We've got the operational talent ready to step in and help you transition the business. And we've got this long-term enduring corporate structure that really can paint a really good future for your employees and your legacy. So a lot of our first conversations with our owners kind of try to key in on those aspects of it um, that really differentiate us from a a buy and flip or a fundless sponsor who may have to go raise money um, or even somebody that isn't going to come run the business themselves is going to be more of a passive investor. Um, we, We do plan to hire in a management team at some point, but for the first step, it's going to be, it's going to be me relocating my family to that business that geography and coming in to kind of transition and figure out how to grow this thing.
2: Ed, you know, I've, it seems like it was forever ago that I first stumbled on to like permanent equity, for example, and that, uh, you know, Trish Higgins and their work with Chenmark since then, it might've been like five or six years ago, maybe even probably five or six years ago, like 2015 ish. I think kind of Brent was just, sort of coming onto the scene is like the s and guy, like the the, the holding company. And, and I just remember discovering his work and thinking, wow, like, why aren't more people doing sort of the Berkshire Hathaway model, this holding company model? It makes too much sense on paper. Like, it seems way better than selling your company to a fix and flip, you know, Blackstone, fix it, buy it, fix it, flip it. Um, but, you know, I've noticed that there are a lot of folks that are, you know, that are trying to employ this model on kind of a meta level, like going forward, do you feel like the space is going to get even more competitive? And if so, you know, beyond what you just said, are there other ways in the future that you, you hope to be differentiated on? Does that, does that make sense?
1: It does. And I think that, yeah, uh, you know, we were definitely influenced by Chen Mark, by Brent, by some of the other kind of long-term thinkers in the space, uh, because it is a very different mindset to the, buy, fix, flip, assets under management, you know, what, you know, how can I raise a bigger and bigger fund? Um, it's just a very different mindset to that kind of an approach. Um, and it requires operators, um, principals who, ha- like, think differently. Um, and so we think we think differently. And I know that you guys mentioned, um, I think when you're interviewing you, Victor, uh, about this silver tsunami, this baby boomer transition of you know generational wealth transfer that's happening over the coming decades. I think you will see um, as more and more businesses come up for sale, a lot of the owners who have themselves built this business, built their legacy, this is their career over uh, a 30, 40 year period. They're gonna look for buyers who are aligned with that type of a stewardship model. And so I do think that there'll be more and more people. I mean, we've seen it, but it could just be that we're we're doing it. So we're talking to more, we're involved in the Twitter community, we're talking to more people in the space. So it seems like it's growing in popularity. But I do think that there is going to be a preference going forward for people who are going to really reinvest in businesses for the long term. Um, some things you just can't do when you're uh, bringing in your bench of executives and trying to really scale and turn something over to hit an IRR is you can't really invest in training programs and hiring people and compensating them correctly such that they they themselves have a career progression they compound their own learnings especially in a services or a trade business where they're getting better and better and feel like they are growing with the company you know, if you're trying to achieve that on a on a time frame that's, you know, three to five, seven years, like that's just really hard to do versus we can make those investments for the long term for multiple decades. So we think that that's, that's going to differentiate us even more as we kind of build a brand around um, Evermore being um, a good, not a good actor, but a company that owners want to sell to, the buyer of choice in whatever industry we end up acquiring in. I think that that kind of if we can eventually kind of like Brent has a bit with his inbound requests, if we can develop a a brand that people recognize Evermore as somebody that they want to sell to, that's very, very
0: powerful. Oh, that was an awesome question, Benton. And and that was a phenomenal uh, response. Um, I wanna ask one more question about evaluating businesses before digging in a little bit uh, on the operation side, which I know is really your bread and butter. I know we hit on business quality pretty extensively, but uh, so so maybe these answers are the same. But um, if you get an owner on the phone and you can only ask them three questions uh, to go down your checklist and determine if it's worth a follow up call, what would those three questions be? After you find out that that they they are uh, potentially interested in selling,
1: that was going to be one of my one yeah. of my questions. Was kind of just like talk about. Why you want to sell your business, right? Because you end up hearing a lot about how people think about their business just from that question. So, assuming that they've, you know, they're a, a willing seller, they're they have a, a compelling reason for why they're looking to uh, exit the business. Um, I think my first question would just be a little bit about where they see the business in, you know, five years, seven years, ten years, because that points a lot towards. You know, have they been running it as a lifestyle business? Are they looking to grow? Do they see potential in this? What have they been doing or haven't they been doing um, that we could potentially, leverage we could potentially pull to, to help grow the business? So I'd ask them about their kind of future vision for the business. Um, I'd ask them a lot about, or I guess the next question, question number two would be around um, when would, how do you gain new customers? Right? Like when was last time, what's your sales process around gaining new customers? Um, And then probably because we're so focused on laser churn, it's a little bit about like, why do customers leave, right? Um, And those are just kind of entry points to, again, kind of tapping the owner about how they think about growth, um, how they think about the the question about losing customers, a little about, about the competitive dynamics in the industry. Um, what, why are people leaving, what What would be, you know, what would cause them to, uh, how resilient is the business in terms of, you know, cyclicality, uh, so I would say that those would probably be the three questions is like where do you see yourself in five years, um, how do you gain customers, or when was, tell me about the last time you gained a customer, and tell me about the last time you lost a customer.
2: Are you guys thinking about working with sellers post-close? Like, I guess each situation tends to be different, but do you have a preference, no preference?
1: I think we would like to find a business owner that wants to do a true transition of the business. Um, We're open to whether that's a three-month transition or a nine-month transition. I think ideally, I'd like it to be a three to six month, like true transition of the business where we do a bit of a roadshow meeting the employees, the customers, the suppliers, kind of like doing warm intros to like all the key players. Um, and I don't want to say I want to get the owner out of the business, but I, I want them to uh, understand or, or move into more of a advisory type role. For sure. Not coming into the office day to day. And for that next six months, they answer the phone when I call and kind of advise on hopefully one or two big strategic decisions per year. Um, but because we already have an investor base that serves as our mentors and advisors, we already have people that we can lean on to kind of think about strategic growth options. So I'd say the I, I want the, the owner to be in a position where they can go enjoy um, the fruits of their, their hard earned career.
0: I apologize on the audio quality right now. I think that there's a jackhammer uh, and a barking dog in my apartment. I don't know if you guys can hear that. Uh, but the second question you had uh, to ask business owners was around gaining customers. Um, what are you trying to glean from that answer?
1: We talk to a lot of owners who um, have have a, an awareness of either their ability as an owner to kind of take it to the next level. They've got one foot in the field, one foot managing people. So you hear a lot of things of like, yeah, I could grow this, but I can't find talent. I can't find talented repair techs. Or I could grow this and I could find talented repair techs, but I hate managing people, right? Like I just, you know, or I could grow talent or I could grow uh, customers. I could hire techs. I don't mind managing people, but I don't want to move two states over. Right, so there's all these incremental things that you can learn about the owner, about the culture of the business. Are people just coming in and punching the clock, or are people coming in and following this business owner who is their leader? How do they think about expansion and running this business? Because we find a lot of them, and rightfully so, they've built it to a point where they're making almost a million dollars a year. Um, they're a couple of years from retirement, and they've kind of stopped pushing down on the gas pedal just because it, it's risky to reinvest in a business. It's risky to try to, it's hard work to go expand into a new territory or do a tuck in acquisition. Um, if they speak to a lot of that as potential, that kind of points to us that this is this is a business that we could come in and, and actually have a lot of levers to pull for growth.
0: I love that. Um, Ed, in another interview of yours, um, I really liked something you said about uh, your mentor Uh, One of your mentors being Phil Jackson, uh, the famous coach, and and you love how he could take great talent and and bring out their full potential. Um, It's something that I've read about a lot of great athletes like Michael Jordan and LeBron James. They're not only uh, incredible athletes themselves, but they're really good at um, understanding team dynamics and understanding personalities and being able to draw out potential. Um, I know you guys don't own businesses at Evermore yet, but in your previous role at GE, um, and in just other experiences uh, throughout your career, what have you learned about developing talent and bringing out individuals' potential?
1: I've learned that definitely that that is one of the things that I find most rewarding is watching people succeed and kind of personally grow in both their careers, like professionally, but also personally in terms of their skill sets. Um, that that's something that's very rewarding to me. But I think a lot of people. Um, what I often find is a lot of people just aren't asked that question. They're not pushed that way by their manager um, either you know because their manager doesn't think that way or because they're just not interested and that, that's totally fine if you know some people, like I said, come in and, and they're working for a paycheck and, and they do great work. Um, but identifying those people that do want more um, out of their career, sometimes all it takes is some one-on-one like mentorship or asking of those questions of like, Hey, you know, in a few years from now, do you hope you're doing the same thing? Do you want to do something different? Like I can provide you that opportunity to grow and develop and that a it's rewarding for me, but it's also rewarding for them that they can kind of progress in their career and move um, to higher levels of whatever it is that they find enjoyable right? If, if they can make more money so that they can buy a boat to go fishing, like I want to be able to enable that. Um, and a lot of that comes around people management and just kind of mentoring or asking people about what it is that they want out of their careers. Uh, because a lot of people work to support other aspects of their life, their family, their children, their hobbies. Um, and so work is something that's a necessity, but it shouldn't be a burden. You shouldn't have, shouldn't dread going into work. And so I, I like trying to tap into some of that to say hey let's make sure that there, we're aligned on you as a complete person
2: yeah that that sort of hits home for me um i actually just sent out my first email today about i haven't set a cadence on one-on-ones but just setting up meetings with all the folks in the office to to ask that question and uh you know i'm young i'm inexperienced with leading other people um And, you know, so for me, it's about asking questions. So I love that question about where do you want to be in your career? And I I remember something that Trish Higgins said, which was something along the lines of like, you know, it it doesn't matter if you want to be the CEO or if you want to stay in the same spot, there will always be a spot at the table, like a, a place at the team. But it just comes down to, like, what do you really want and how can we help you achieve that? So i i like that and it's transparent too right like let's not play any games if you're here because you want to support other things that's great like how can i support you in that um
1: yeah that's the role of a great manager is to make people's lives easier make their jobs more enjoyable and help them solve for whatever it is that they're trying to solve for and that will change right some people may come in and say like hey i want to grow i want more responsibility i want to be the best and then they have a family event, their, their mother or their father gets sick and Hey, all of a sudden I need to take a step back in my career. You're still a valued member of the team. We still want you to have a seat at the table. And, and it's totally okay that sometimes you give, and sometimes you take, or sometimes you lean in, sometimes you got to lean out, but that's really part of the team culture. Um, you know, Phil Jackson does it great. A lot of, you know, Mike Krzyzewski does it a great job. Like a lot of these great coaches, they understand that team dynamic. And and they're pretty transparent about like this is what I need from you today, and this is what you know you can give me or you can step back today. This guy's got it, like whatever. It's it's very much a collaborative culture.
2: Ed, I like you a lot, but you just made a big boo boo mentioning Mike Shashewsky on this podcast.
1: I know I forgot about that to be honest with you, but (laughs) more so because he's uh I, I met him when I was younger and he's a good Catholic role model for me. And I know you guys are both Christians, so like. That's a, that's another, maybe we can align on that
2: side of it. Yeah, we can, we'll, we'll take, yeah, we'll take that. Uh, the Duke part, I don't know. Totally, totally
0: fair. So Ed, um, as you guys, um, buy your first business and then, you know, hopefully soon after you buy your second business, uh, right now the team is, is you and Justin and you'll be the full-time CEO of the first business. When you acquire the second business, will you be a part time CEO of two different businesses, or, or how will the Evermore structure uh, or Evermore team need to evolve?
1: It's a great question, and it's a lot of kind of TBD to be, to be direct. Um, I would love for this thing to align such that I'm running the business for a year or two, and now I know the industry, now I know who needs to be in the seats. I've hired a COO to take over the day to day. Um, I've hired you know, um, a second layer management. Then the question becomes, if the next acquisition is independent of the first one, I can't be CEOs of two businesses. So either I need to replace myself or I need to like have the founder stick around until such a point where I can replace myself. But if it's more of a tuck-in or an integration type acquisition, I think that, that I'm fine to stay in the, in the CEO chair until my skill set is tapped out. And I recognize, hey, I'm not the right person to be in this CEO seat, um, and then if that if, if the next if the skill set required to take the business from, you know, five million in ebitda to ten is not me, I, I'm okay with that, right? Then it just means we need to go find a business and acquire a business that's back at that one or two million level, and I get to do that playbook that I've, I've just developed or I just the path I just walked. I just get to do it again, and while mentoring or you know, evaluating how well that CEO is doing and taking that business to the next level, and then over time. I, I won't be a CEO of any of these businesses. I'll just be mentoring and you know kind of working with the CEOs of all the portfolio companies to kind of uh, like share best practices and make sure that they're all executing on the strategic vision we set for evermore at the whole book.
0: Definitely. Um, at, before we transition to our final questions, which are a little bit more philosophical in nature, I have one more tactical question for you which is admittedly uh, selfish. And it's around uh, how I spend my next two years while I'm getting my MBA. So my goal right now, at least, uh, is to launch or acquire a business by the time I graduate. Knowing that, um, as as you think about your time at Stanford, um, how should I spend these next two years? What skills and experiences should I build? Um, How should I spend my time? And I guess one easy way to think about this would be like, as you look back, was there anything that was just super impactful and valuable that you've drawn consistently today? Or is or do you have any regrets that you um, didn't take advantage of while you were at Stanford? And if, it, and if you could go back, you definitely would.
2: There are lots of MBA students that are starting this fall, so I don't think that's a selfish question. Just saying.
1: It's a great question. Um, I would say that the first thing I would just advise any MBA student to do is to just take some time to step back and reflect about what you want to do with your career. It's a great, natural pause in your, you know, I'm going to climb my career to the next level to kind of say, hey, you know, do I need to change direction? Do I need to develop certain skill sets? It's a lot of looking internally to say, what do I want out of the next phase of my life? What am I solving for? Um, But that can be done, you know, pretty easily. Uh, You don't really need uh, the MBA curriculum or the MBA alumni network to do that. You just need, you know, a room and, and a pen and paper. Um, but in terms of what I what I would encourage people also to do during their two years of their MBA is to leverage the fact that you are a student to explore. You're in a unique position with a .edu email address to ask for advice and mentorship and just um, kind of explore different industries or explore different models. People answer or respond to your emails a lot more when you're not asking them to buy their business or asking them, um, you know, coming at it as like I am now, now as an acquirer, um, you're you're clearly just a student. And people are willing to help out in that regard. And that that networking aspect of it, I think, um, will be very valuable for both, you know, learning to talk to business owners, but also, you know, your professors, the alumni network. um, I don't know, future people in industries like, CEOs of industries that you think you may want to acquire in, I would just encourage you to lean into the listening phase and the, I'm just a student. I want to learn as much as I can um, while, I, while I got the
0: chance. what did you do for your summer internship?
1: So I solved for a very, like almost an itch. Uh, I did a pre-MBA internship in private equity operations, you know, spent time at a portfolio company doing PE ops. And I, I always had this thing that like, Hey, how, what is the investment side? It sounds cool. It sounds sexy. Like I'd love to be a PE or PE investment deal team guy. Uh, and so my summer internship, I spent at a middle market uh, private equity firm in Houston and got to work on a deal, got to do research and like evaluate and all this kind of stuff. And it was great for me because I like, ended up the internship saying, Hey, I'm not, a, I'm not a deal guy. I'm not, I'm not an investment guy. Like I didn't like sitting in the corporate tower in my own office day after day for long hours without interacting with people. I'm a people guy. I like being managing teams. I'm, you know, investing can kind of be an individual contributor type role where you're doing a lot of the work yourself. Um, And so I, it was great for me to realize that that while I have this idea of what it is and I thought maybe I would like to do it, that that just doesn't align with what, so it's, it's almost more validating or it was very good for me to say, that's not what I want to do. Um, so I could kind of double down on what I am good at and what I what I do want to do. Um, so I would say if, if you have that opportunity in your internship to either explore something that you know you want to do or cancel something, cross something off the list that you thought you maybe wanted to do, um, you can kind of move forward with no regrets.
2: Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Did, I guess a follow up for that for Victor, we've talked about this, you know, were you considering going to the middle market PE shop? Or was it a little bit more of trying to get experience in the investment side um, without an intention? And you don't have to answer that if you don't want to.
1: I, I had considered going back there because they were a very much middle market PE in terms of their entrepreneurial, they're a great place to work in terms of it wasn't as siloed. You got to kind of work on the deals that you kind of sourced. Um, So I I very much considered that. I think I was more solving for, you know, PE looks very good on your resume versus I interned at a search fund. People are like, what is a search fund? So because I wasn't fully committed to Evermore was not really a thing yet. Like it was just an idea. Um, I wasn't sure whether I was going to launch a search and kind of take on the risk of you know, not being in the deal world, not having done a deal. So I wanted some experience in that. But I also thought, hey, maybe I end up at finding my entrepreneurship throughout getting in the driver's seat of a, of a business via more of like a CEO and training type program or a BE ops group where I know the deal side, I work in the ops group, but then after a few years, I'm going to exit to a portfolio company. And that's how I'm going to kind of get into the CEO side of a business.
2: Got it. Got it. Well, we wanna wrap up, wanna respect your time. I appreciate you taking almost an hour and a half. So this has been an awesome convo. The final questions, we ask these to each guest. So to start off with what does business doing, what does doing business the right way mean to you?
1: Back when I was working at GE, I was on the shop floor a lot and I always had like three principles that I told my employees I like always wanted to lead by. So doing business right by me means, first off, it started with safety. Right. In an environment where people can get hurt. We need everybody going home safe to their families every day. That's that's a non-negotiable You know, kind of tied in with that. and Right behind that is quality, you know, safety and quality. So I kind of put those into the first principle bucket. Um, but second for me was all around respect. I'm going to check my ego at the door. I'll do whatever job needs necessary. You know, Chris Williams mentioned this like getting hands on and not being not being above any of your team, uh, really being peers. I think is really a a great way to lead a business and to kind of do right in business is to check your ego and and show respect to everybody. And then the third one is all around communication, Um, being transparent, being honest. You know, you may not like what I have to say, but here's why I decided that. Here's, you know, straightforward. This is what we're doing. Um, Kind of cuts off a lot of the animosity, kind of the rumors, kind of the, you know, distrust, uh, all of that safety, respect and communication all lead to trying to foster a very trusting environment um, amongst amongst your
2: employees. Are there any personal habits or practices that you're dedicated to that help, you know, keep you fit physically or mentally or spiritually that you just, you know, you, or just that you enjoy doing?
1: So I, uh, I'm, I'm Catholic, and so I end up trying to go to Mass and trying to do some type of daily reflection. Um, Notre Dame sends out this daily reflection that I try to read um, to just kind of remind myself of what's important in life. So that's a, that's a habit. I'd say ever since I had my firstborn son 11 months ago, a lot of where I get my energy outside of work is just spending time with family. Um, it's really great to go home and spend time with him and play with him. and. My wife's a superhero for all that she does for our family, but it's it's really rewarding and energizing for me to do that. And then I guess the only other one that we've developed on and off, but we've picked up recently is um, I'm not a huge tea drinker, but every night before bed, we've started to, to each have a, a cup of tea. And that's mostly to kind of remove distraction, get you to slow down because you can't guzzle a hot cup of tea. And you, you end up kind of like easing into the night, which kind of really kind of helps relax from the day's, you know, stresses and kind of puts you in a good mindset to kind of wind down
2: for the day. That's the first time I've heard that. Uh, it's not like caffeinated tea, right? No, it's just, yeah. it's a sleepy time tea. Yeah. I like that. What kind of tea is it? Uh,
1: it's just an herbal tea that we put okay. some honey in. Uh, yeah. It's pretty, pretty commodity at, at any target okay. or you know, whatever. But it's, like I said, it's more so about the practice of, you know, slowing down, sitting there talking and kind of just taking a a moment to breathe and unwind. Sometimes I end up looking at my phone, which isn't as good, but you know, if I can really actually kind of unwind and and take a step down, it, it really helps.
2: Yeah. Did you take any courses by Alvin Plantinga by chance? I did not. Okay. I'm a big fan of his writing. Uh, I read, um, I think it's called where the conflict really lies i used to be big into apologetics i mean i'm still into apologetics i don't read nearly as much as i used to i used to be obsessed with it and he wrote a couple good books that i read so and i've always just respected his writing so just was curious does he does he still teach there uh, i actually don't know okay I, I, I haven't i haven't heard the name oh, okay got it got it yeah you should check him out he's um i believe he was a, a professor at at Notre Dame, could be wrong. Could could be totally off base. Anyways, uh, what business hasn't been started yet but needs to be? And another way of asking this is, if you could snap your fingers, solve a pain point, what would it be?
1: So I have two answers to this. One is on a personal frustration that you know, just living here in Austin, a lot uh, there's there an ordinance that all of the individual residences have composting, but the multifamily units do not. And so I live in an apartment complex and my wife and I, I guess we're both into composting, but she has got this subscription service for compostable diapers for our son. But because we don't have composting in our apartment complex, we end up having to box these up and ship them out to get composted. And so I i would love if there would be a business that would start up that would serve uh, high-rise apartment complexes or multifamily buildings here in Austin for composting. So, so there, you, you, you would pay for that? I would. Because right now I'm paying to ship this big box of dirty yeah. diapers, you know, to some lay, you know, compost center. I actually don't even know where.
2: Check out, there's a, serv- or a startup called, I think it's called Loam, L-O-A-M. Um, I just saw it the other day and it's like a small personal com- compost machine, I think. I don't know if it's like a subscription service or if it's, you have to actually buy it. But it looked kind of interesting. I sent it to my dad, who's like a real he's a really big home gardener. Uh, it's kind of got me into it. I don't do any composting, but um, it looked pretty interesting. So I'll have to check it out. Yeah,
1: yeah. The other one was just uh, this is more where we've been doing some outreach in the industrial space is I wish there were more businesses out right, out there right now offering IIOT, industrial Internet of technology as a service or outsourced IIOT. A lot of business owners want to become smart. They want to implement the technology. They don't know where to start and they don't want to have to manage it, right? Like you don't want to manage your IT. You don't really want another dashboard and all this data coming into you to make decisions on. You kind of want somebody else to do all the analytics and management of that. And I think that there's an opportunity to help businesses get up that scale um, from a tech perspective.
2: hundred uh... percent this is something that we talked to Chris Powers about who I don't know if you listened to that interview. If you haven't, it'd, it'd be worth checking out. Maybe not the whole one, but towards the end, he starts talking about internet of things as applied to, you know, just real estate, not, not only just in industrials or uh, industrial services, but like industrial real estate, but same concept. Um, he's very kind of interested in that space as well. So I, I agree. There's a lot of Monitoring that you can do to catch things on the front end that you can avoid the the break it fix it type of model. So um, Well To finish up I want you to talk to the audience on how they can help you You know with what you and Justin are currently working on, you know, what can they do to help you guys to reach out to get connected? the floor is yours
1: I appreciate it. And yeah, we're right now in the kind of the search phase of Evermore trying to find that first acquisition. So if I were to ask your audience or anything, it's just, if you know of good, you know, industrial services, businesses, um, they can be unsexy, they can be boring. Um, if, but if you know of any owners of those businesses who are nearing retirement or considering transition options and looking for that son or daughter profile as opposed to the private equity or strategic or competitor type buyout option, You know, we would love to just talk to them. We're going to be around for the next 20 years. So even if you're not ready to sell today, but you're looking to kind of prepare a plan for the next two, three, four, five years, we, we'd love to build a relationship because there's a lot of people you can work with in business. Finding good people um, is, is challenging and good people have good cultures. They care for their employees. So like you know, in addition to all the business characteristics, we very much want to find an owner that we can um, align with in terms of values and and how we how we you know, carry on the legacy of their business.
2: I love that, Ed Redden from Evermore Industries. Appreciate you coming on. This has been a blast, and I hope our audience, awesome Ed. Yeah, this has been great. So thanks for taking the time, and thanks for allowing us to soak up an hour and a half of your time. Best of luck in the first acquisition in couple years when you've got a couple under your belt we want to have you back on when you're sort of transitioning away from president the president CEO role so appreciate you coming on this is fun this is Benton here again thanks so much for listening to the circle of competence podcast to find more episodes like this one go to circleofcompetence.co, that's circleofcompetence.co, to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.